Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Amira Valiani, the co-founder and CEO of Glow, a super cool podcasting company that helps podcasters get into the subscription business. We talk all about how that's totally the future and how very insightful her journey from politics to becoming a startup founder was. Let's jump in. All right, Amira, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks for hopping on here. Uh, you live in Seattle, right? Uh, I normally live in Seattle, uh, but I'm actually in Boston right now for the pandemic just to be close to family. Mm, is that where you grew up? I grew up in the Bay Area, so a long, windy road, but uh, but I'm here with my husband and our new COVID puppy, which has been nice. Ah, congratulations. Thank you. Cool. Um, all right. Well, let's get into your story. And we always start, I always let the guests start like wherever they want. You know, where did the seeds, do you think, start to be sowed for, you know, where and when Amira started to become the person that she is today? That is a broad question. Um, I think I've always been influenced by the idea of wanting to create an impact. Uh, I think, you know, if I look back in my story, that has to do a lot about uh, my upraising based on my family's roots, interested um, in service and, um, and my religious roots. And I think there's always been a marriage of this idea of you can have an impact and also be good at business. And so I grew up with that thought process as well. Um, and so a lot of my life journey is about you're thinking about ways where I can have an impact while also, um, you know, pursuing business and doing things that I think are really interesting and, and have an impact on people, um, you know, financially and create value for them, but also do good for the world. Um, and that, you know, that, that's sort of been around all my life. Um, and I think how I think about my businesses and my moves sort of roots back to that. So if you want to go back into, you know, my parents and uh, sort of their, um, their story of impact or, you know, some of the things I did more specifically. Um, I'm happy to talk more through that, but that's, that I, that's, I think sort of the, the guiding light. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And it's a concept that's become popularized more today than much more than I'm sure than when you were growing, growing up and businesses were businesses and public good things were for public good. And, and now everyone's so interested in, in merging the two and, and rightly so like there, there can be uh, incredible outcomes when you kind of put these two things together. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's funny, like I was just, I was just uh, talking to um, a friend of mine who uh, is doing ESG investing for sort of a large cap investment firm. And what she was saying is that, you know, th their internal studies show time after time that a business that has strong sort of social fundamentals also tends to outperform the market. And there's, there's lots of reasons for that. Right. But I think what people are seeing and, and consumers are increasingly demanding is that, by doing good for the world, you can also um, have outsized returns. Um, 
And, and I think like, by the way, you don't always have to look for like a socially impactful business is the bottom line. But I think making sure that you have both in your life is, is incredibly important. So like my dad, for example, was an entrepreneur. His business didn't really have anything to do with impact, but he also spent probably 20% of his time um, on uh, volunteer service where he was working on international development. I think that's a great way to also marry your two passions. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I love everything that you're saying. Okay. So you go to college and you get out and what's your first job? Yeah. So I, um, my first job out of college was working at Pepsi doing marketing. And I took that job because, um, I applied for 70 jobs through like the portal on our campus website. And I got one, which was a marketing job at Pepsi. And so, you know, you got to imagine like, all right, people tell me it's a good job. This seems interesting. Like, let me go for it. And I got there and immediately I was like, this is, this is not where I want to be. Like, this is just not the right fit for me. Um, and I'd always been interested in politics, you know, as a political science major in college. And so I just started very quickly. I was at Pepsi, started applying to a bunch of other things. Um, and one of the applications that came through was an internship at the White House. Um, and so, you know, I, I emailed my boss at Pepsi, or I got a call with them and I actually created a slideshow uh, and it was basically all the reasons I'm leaving this job to go take an internship at the White House. <laughs> and so that was six months into my job at Pepsi. I moved down to DC, did the White House internship. Internship turned into a job, uh, worked at the State Department, then later back on um, national security issues at the White House and, and spent sort of the early parts of my career uh, in public service. Uh, well, I love the fact that you left a job for an internship. I think it's something that totally makes sense given the, the area, the expertise that, that you wanted to go get. But was that scary for you at the time? Like, was your family supportive of, of, of that decision? It was incredibly scary, but it also, I think, speaks to how unhappy I was at the job I had, you know, and I, I think it was zero knock on Pepsi, right? Like the other peers I started with, the other, I think there were five people in my class, like the other four stuck around for a lot of time. They had like amazing projects, but just was not my jam. And so, you know, how clear it was that I wanted to leave that job for an internship, um, I think, I think spoke to sort of my deep unhappiness. And, and it also honestly speaks to privilege. Like I'd been able to save a little bit, but also my parents were supportive, you know, um, and I knew, I knew I had a backup plan. I could always go home if things don't work out and, and luckily I didn't yeah. have to, but um, yeah, it was scary, but also, you know, when you're in those situations, like sometimes your heart just tells you what to do and you got to pull the trigger on it. Right. Okay. So what was the internship at the White House? Like specifically, what what'd you do? Yeah, so I was at the National Economic Council, and this was um, in the wake of the 2008 recession. So um, the country was still very much like climbing its way out of, uh, you know, then the worst crisis that we had seen in years. Um, and I was, you know, the person helping do research papers, you know, coming to meetings, taking notes, typing them up, sending out to the, sending them out to the rest of the team, um, doing deep research. Just, just really being a fly on the wall and producing as much value as I could by synthesizing things, doing it well, and doing the research that people needed, um, which was amazing. Like I think that that experience to me um, really, really changed the way I thought about working in government. Like I'd always sort of heard these stereotypes that government's slow moving, people aren't very smart, and like to this day, the people I worked with at the White House are the smartest people I've ever met. People are interested, they're interesting, it's incredibly fast paced, and you're working on the, the biggest issues in the world, uh, which was which was uh, incredibly um, fun and motivating. Yeah, I, 
I can imagine. And so what did you do during that six-month internship that convinced them that, or what do, you, what do you think you did that convinced them that you were worth bringing on full-time? Yeah. So my my job after that internship actually uh, ended up being at the State Department. So the, the short version is it was just a lot of hustle. Like, you know, I, I realized that so the, that first job at a Pepsi, like I applied to on an application. I have never had a job since, and I don't think I ever will, where you just sort of apply off a website. So like, you know, I got there and a couple months into the internship, I was like, I want to stick around. How do I make this happen? And I had coffee with every person who was willing to sit down with me and just asked about, you know, their journey. I was trying to map out the government and how it worked, where I wanted to get my place. Um, and at the end of it, I said, you know, if, if you hear of anything, I'm interested in sticking around. So, you know, let's please keep in touch. And 50 or 60 coffee chats later, uh, one of the folks who was uh, a senior advisor to the National Economic Council, who um, I guess I did something to impress, found out that one of his buddies over at the State Department, who was an advisor to then Hillary Clinton, or still Hillary Clinton, but then Secretary Clinton, um, was looking for um, what's called a special assistant. And I went over and I interviewed, and uh, they called me two weeks after the internship was over and told me I got the job. Wow. Cool story and power of networking, right? Yeah, totally power of networking. Very, very important. Um, and then, you know, keep, keeping that network and like providing value to that network and showing that that you're like, this is an authentic relationship. It's not just so transactional that just like, please give me a job. But, but actually, you know, people that come on this podcast, one of the main things we talk about is like authentic networking, not just being out there being like, hey, job, job, job. But like, how can I have an actual human relationship with you? I think that's so incredibly important. You know, one of my biggest takeaways in my career is purpose drives relationships, not just my career in life, right? And you think about that with friendships. You know, the reason that you make so many friends in college um, or, you know, growing up in classes is because you end up doing group projects together or you throw a party together or you have to figure out how to live together and like put together the Ikea couch, right? Like having a joint project and a purpose where you can show that you add value is how relationships are built. And that carries over into the professional world as well. You know, when you do good work, when you contribute to a team, uh, when you show people that you're producing and doing interesting things, like people will naturally be drawn drawn to you. And so, um, you know, I think being productive when it comes to uh, what you put out in the world will naturally help you be a more effective networker that is authentic. Right. And that's fantastic advice. So thank you for throwing that out there. Okay, so after... Uh, after this, what are you thinking? I'm going to stay in politics forever and maybe become president or politics, maybe not for me. Let me go see what else is, is out there. Yeah. So the, I was at the State Department for a couple of years. And then when Secretary Clinton left, her whole team left, I went back over to the White House, worked there for a couple of years and just had an incredible, incredible time. I got tons of exposure. Um, but I, I think something was clear to me, which was DC is an amazing place, and I had learned from incredibly smart people. Um, but I had I had this entrepreneurial itch, and I realized that I didn't want to spend my entire career in, in DC. You know, there's a lot of people that do that, and they become policy experts um, and really deep dive into the nuances of a particular topic. You know, they know all about China or arms policy or taxation, um, and that's that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something that felt uh, a little more risk-seeking, a little more fast-paced, something where I got like tons of feedback from different forces a lot. And so I said, you know, I think politics and policy is incredibly valuable and I, I would love to come back someday and contribute, but this isn't where I want to spend sort of the the meat of my career right now. 
And so I went to business school. Um, and so I went off and studied in grad school with the aim towards doing something a little more entrepreneurial. Uh, and I didn't know what that meant yet, but I sort of went in and, and sort of with eyes open was looking out for opportunity. Right. Uh, so I was similar. I didn't know at the time that you didn't need to go to business school to start a business, but it was it's certainly a helpful period of figuring out where and what and how you want to do with your life. It is a great time to reflect. And for me, you know, coming out of um, coming out of DC, it, it, people are incredibly mission driven, right? There was there was zero uh, problem with the fact that like yeah, I was going to be around people who cared about the world. But was I what, what I wasn't surrounded by is people who like don't care about that stuff at all. And what I learned in business school is, you know. There's a ton of people out there who like don't really care that much about mission or like missions interesting, but like that's the thing I'm going to do in 1% of my time when people ask for donations. That's not the thing that drives me my work. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, meeting people from across the spectrum and sort of learning the different levers in society and really feeling like I knew how to speak to the drivers of purpose of people from all across the spectrum, particularly people who you know, eventually I'd be in the boardrooms pitching or trying to convince to invest in my business or partner with me. I think being able to work with all those stakeholders and understanding the drivers behind them was incredibly important to my career today. Um, and, you know, I got by going to business school. You're right. That's a very different experience. I hadn't thought about that from from what you had. Because I worked in finance and went to business school, so I had only seen the – the one type of people. I haven't really been around the people that want to change the world so much. And I think that's been a detriment to my career because I'm so interested in that space. But okay, so awesome for you for being able to recognize that and then get yourself into a situation where you can get some diversity. And so what happens to you in business school? Do you merge? It sounds like you merge those those two ideas, right? Um, yeah. I, in business school, I think really I was... I. Uh, uh, look, I was never going to start a business that I thought was was going to be bad for society, right? Like, I, it was just not going to be something that I think I was motivated by, um, or or I think neutral, right? Like, I think you know part of the issue I had at Pepsi was uh, it's not that I don't it's not that I think soda is bad. Like, I, I drink diet soda like all the time, like three times a day. Like, it's <laughs> my vice is bad, but um, it's it's that I couldn't see how I could do something positive with it. And so, something that motivates me was inherently always going to be something that I thought had uh, had a positive output, even if it's not um, clear. Uh, but what I did in business school is I really wanted to iterate on this idea of what it meant to start a business. And so, I spent a lot of business school like starting and experimenting with, and you know seeing how different businesses panned out. So like I started, you know, this was, I was thinking about it the other day, like <laughs> this was when it was not at all clear, like what was going to happen with the food delivery wars. And, you know, people had not heard of companies like Caviar or DoorDash yet. And I had this idea that it would be really cool to make it easy to buy home cooked food from other people. Mm. Um, you know, like the share economy was popping off. And so yeah. I started a business where people could, sell home cooked food to people in their community. Um, and I ran it for about a year while I was in grad school. And like the base was our student center, like students would cook the meals, they'd go drop them off in the student fridge, and then people would pick them up and Venmo me and that would be the payment. And that's sort of how we started to get iterations in. And I spent like a year doing that. And it was incredibly fun. Like I saw how much I liked the entrepreneurial journey and like how great it was to scrap, scrap something together. And I felt like I could do it. Um, and I also learned very quickly, like, 
all the different holes and all the different things that you have to think about when you're starting something from scratch. For example, regulatory risk. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, like that was my business school journey is like trying out all these different ideas and, and figuring out like where I might be able to uh, make a dent. Right. Well, what a perfect time to do that in your life. And the, yeah, you're right. I've, I've, I've also seen that problem and you, you, you would think like, oh, someone cooking food for a family or one person, like a, an old grandma, like she could easily make 10 more meals, but then you have the regulation of cooking food in a kitchen in a house and not a commercial kitchen. And so, yeah, that's an interesting business. Yeah. Maybe someday I'll get back to it. I have some ideas about how to do it differently, but, uh, so, but it was fun. I ate well. <laughs> I'm sure. So Amir, did, did you, so as you're going through this business ideation phase, did you land on something uh, that, that turned into something more than, than, than the, than the food delivery? Yeah. So I, um, it was, it was while I was in grad school that I fell in love with podcasts uh, and seeing, I listened to the startup podcast by Gimlet, I think it was 2014 and immediately was hooked, like had data overage on my phone. It was like a big issue. And I just like could not get enough. And at some point I was like, you know, there's tons of different businesses out there, but if I could spend like all my time listening to podcasts and talking to podcasters, like I think I'd be happy. And it feels like there's a lot of inefficiencies here. Like this feels like a pretty primitive um, technology when I compare like my podcast listening experience to my experience of watching something on YouTube, right? So I, I saw potential and I saw that it was a field I wanted to be in. Um, and through that process, again, like started iterating. So I started off thinking, well, like, how do I learn about this industry? Uh, well, I, I see that podcasts have ads as far as I can tell. That's the only way podcasters make money. And so I started reaching out to podcasters and some friends I knew who were podcasts. I said, hey, can I, can I try to sell ads for you? Like, can I try to make you some money? Um, and then I reached out to every person I knew on LinkedIn or was a second degree connection to who worked at a director consumer startup and marketing. And I said, Hey, do you want to buy ads on these podcasts? And so like I started facilitating this, <clears throat> uh, this like, you know, bootstrap podcast ad agency just to understand how it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked well. I learned a lot about that business, the business of that, pro- that process. And I also started my own podcast. Um, and so it was really in business school where I landed on this industry as one that I was passionate about and wanted to stay in. Um, and you know, I, I don't work on the advertising side of the business anymore, um, but it was incredible grounding for me to just understand how how the industry works and start building relationships that I still have today. Yeah, well, Amira, I mean, I, I, I love the through line of what I'm hearing here of all this scrappy hustle uh, situations that you're putting yourself into. It's, uh, it's really admirable. Thank you. Yeah, I, if I have one superpower, it's not. It's that I'm not afraid to be scrappy and hustle. So uh, that that was a lot of uh, a lot of my time in school. And yeah, it's I mean, still what I just, love best. You, you fit yourself into these podcasts. Like they had ad space, and there's a jillion types of businesses. Like let's go connect the two, and you were a connector. Yeah, let's let's send some emails and see if we can sell some ads. That was yeah, the, that was so the value problem. Cool. So as you're learning more about the pod industry. Do you see a problem that is bigger and and you know more um, responsive to your skill set that you, that you could you know sink your teeth into? Yeah, so I found two things. One was you know I started my own podcast and we were a local news podcast. I was re- reporting on sort of the news in my community, and it was right before an election. And uh, you know we get traction like it's 
your total addressable market is inherently small, right? You're bounded by the bounds of the city. But, you know, when you sort of look at the numbers, of the people who listen to the podcast and when like you show up on election night and all of a sudden like the people on TV want to interview you for like whatever the local broadcast is because they've heard of the show and you look at the margins of the elections and you're like, holy shit, like I easily could have swayed that through the podcast, the people <laughs> who listen to it, like you're like, wow, this has a deep impact. And so I was and I was having the time of my life. And so I said, you know, like, this is cool. How do I make money off of it? And I knew the numbers weren't big enough to get advertising, right? Because I'd sold ads. And I started to think, like, maybe there's a, a subscription model to this or a way that people will pay for content. And so I started investigating that in that direction. At the same time, um, I was in touch with one of our clients on the ad business. Um, and we had an ad fall through about like a week before airing. And so I gave him a call and I said, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry um, this ad fell through. And, and it's normally a huge deal for podcasters, right? Because that's their, that's their source of income. And, and it's not dynamic. It's, it's not like it is in programmatic ads on the internet. Like you know, that ad gets filled. It's incredibly hard to replace. And so I apologized. And he responded. He said, it's not a big deal. Like I don't make most of my money through ads anyway. And I was like, what? How do you, how do you make money? He said, well, I, I, uh, you know, I have a subscription service and, uh, you know, I charge uh, $300 a year and people get access to premium content in a forum and I send them like a monthly investor report. It's a finance podcast. And I started doing like the back of the envelope numbers and I was like, wow, this guy makes like the mid six figures through subscription business and he makes like in the tens of thousands of dollars through the ads. So like this guy has figured out subscriptions. And I was like, oh, I'm trying to do subscriptions too. Like, how do you put it together? And it turned out he had a whole dev team overseas that had put together an app for him to distribute his premium content. They had like put together his whole forum. Like he had, he had spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to figure out the infrastructure for building a subscription base for his podcast. Right. And here I was, I was trying to do that. Um, and that's when I said, like, there is a room, there is room in the market to create tools for podcasters to build their businesses, starting with subscriptions. And and that's what led me to found Glow, which is my company today. Right. So, okay, let's let's hear about Glow and what the company does. Yeah. So Glow is a platform for you to build a pot, your podcast business on your own terms. And we believe deeply in the relationship between a podcaster and a listener directly. So our base product allows you to be able to charge listeners for your podcast. Um, it's an incredibly easy to use product from the listener perspective. You know, you go to a landing page, you tap a button, you pay with Apple or Google Pay, you see a list of podcatchers, you click the one you want to listen in, and all of a sudden that private podcast appears in your app for you to listen to. So it takes 10 seconds from like hearing the call to action to check out. Um, and, and that's sort of the root of our business and where we start. So cool. And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, the future of the digital media is the subscription. Like all of it will be in some form, this, uh, ability to pay for a better curated, more premium, more specific, just better experience. And you can pay, you know, somewhere $1 to X amount of dollars, but that will, that will be an option for you. Yeah. And so you guys fit right into that. I think that's right. I mean, here's, here's what I tell anyone who's skeptical is like, like every other medium in the world, there's a ton of free content out there, but there's also a ton of paid content out there, right? Like written content, there's ton, like there's tons that you can get for free, but there's also incredibly robust publications that have been paid for hundreds of years. Same with video. 
And the same is going to be true in audio. And so by facilitating different business models for people who want to uh, be able to charge or experiment with charging for their content, uh, we can help unlock that door in a medium where like this whole revenue stream has been completely untouched since the birth of podcasting like 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm a total believer in the business. So tell us where you are in its life cycle. How long, when did you graduate business school? When did you start this? Have you raised money? Do you have customers? Like, tell, tell us all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, apologies. You might be hearing my dog the, in the background. The puppy, yeah. <laughs> um, so I finished business school in 2017. I bootstrapped different iterations of this for uh, about a year and a half. Uh, and then we ended up uh, getting uh, recruited by a venture studio based out of Seattle called Pioneer Square Labs, who helped us. You yeah, know, Ben's been on the podcast. Oh yeah, Ben is Ben is fantastic. So Ben was our first customer. Uh, so Pioneer Square and and Ben for the listeners is a partner at Pioneer Square Labs, or a, uh, I don't know his exact title. He's a senior dude at Pioneer Square Labs, <laughs> and he's also the co-host of a podcast called Acquired, which is a top ten amazing top podcast. podcast. Yeah, great, it's, it's really good. And you know, Ben and I were working on the same wavelength without really realizing it, um, but we're both thinking about subscription models for podcasts. And so when he when he found me, when we met at some point, he said, you, you should, you should come out and found this company out of PSL. So that was December, 2018. We raised some pre-seed funding out of that venture studio, March of 2019. And then last August we raised our seed round. Um, and you know, uh, we raised it from Graycroft, Norwest Venture Partners, um, Wonderco, which is Jeff Katzenberg's firms. Uh, and then a, a couple of like uh, sort of angel investors that are fantastic partners. So like Nas the Rapper is one of our angels, which is great um, and really fun. And uh, we are, yeah, like a, a couple of years since the journey, about a year after our seed round. Uh, we have a functioning product. It's in the market. Uh, you know, our biggest customers make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year using our pro- our products. And we're incredibly proud of it. Um, and so that, that's sort of where we are. And now we're at the stage where we're like, all right, we've built this like amazing subscription product. We're incredibly proud. Like what are the other parts of a podcaster's life cycle where we can really help make a difference? And, uh, you know, we've been spending a lot of time listening to our customers and thinking about what are the other points in, um, the industry or what other pain points can we help address? And that's where we're going next. Amazing. I mean, what a cool opportunity. It sounds like it sounds like everything is, is going really well. You're getting to build build the I mean, I don't know, I don't know if it's your dream company, but it's a very, very interesting company, right? Yeah. I mean, if I if I can be a company that helps facilitate, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people one day like run their businesses the same way, you know, we think about Shopify's inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um that would be a deeply satisfying way to, to spend yeah, my, life my next 10 years. Um, and so, so yeah, we're, I'm excited about where we're building and we're early, but uh, optimistic. Cool. Well, I mean, I'm excited about what you're building. I'm a fan. I'll, I'll be a follower now. Um, so I guess uh, I'll get you out of here on this, on this last question here. Uh, a piece of advice, you know, for someone, maybe they're in that Pepsi job and they're thinking like, I don't know, should I grind through this? Should I try something else? everything, you know, this is a good job. Like, how do you tell us, talk to someone about trying to, you know, kind of carve out their place in the universe based on the experience that that you've gone through? I was thinking about this when you raised the question. And I think my advice would be divorce the job from what you want to achieve. So, you know, forget about where you're going to do something. Think about 10 years from now, 
what do you want to be true about what you've done? So like on my 30th birthday, for example, I said, you know, I have a lot of different interests and I can't map the next 10 years, but I do know that I care really deeply about affecting people's lives. Um, I want by the time I'm 40 to have impacted 10,000 people's lives better. And there's a myriad different ways I can do that. But as I think about evaluating the decisions in front of me, that will be one of the key metrics that I use to figure out whether or not I should take on this opportunity. And once you start filtering things through that lens of what you want to be true about what you've achieved, whether or not it's impact, whether or not it's something else, for some people it's I want to be financially self-sufficient, you know, um, I, yeah, I want to be able to retire by 40 uh, is, the, is the movement. Um, you, whatever you want that lens to be, like, if you can keep that in mind, everything else starts being much clearer because it, it, then you realize it doesn't matter what fork in the road that you take to get there. You're still accomplishing or taking really important steps towards accomplishing whatever your North Star is. So, so don't think about the job as much as what you want to achieve and then filter the opportunities through that achievement. Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's a very thoughtful frame, framework, as has been this entire conversation. This has been just really delightful speaking with you. Yeah, you as well, Alex. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you for reaching out and for having me. Okay, thanks so much for sharing your story. This was awesome. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you could support us is by telling your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks.